Welcome to this week's message. I'm Malcolm Baxter, Senior Pastor of Heart Church, and I'm so glad you're here. Whether you've been coming for years or it's your first time on the podcast, we hope this inspires you. Thank you. God bless you. Welcome. I, I, my name is Wayne. I don't want to be pedantic. I don't want to be pedantic, but I am. It's not a banner, you're right. It's not a big piece of wood. It's a placard. <laughs> Just saying. Hello, my name's Wayne. Uh, I'm, I lead the pastoral department here at Heart Church. And it's a joy and a delight to be able to open the Word of God with you here this morning. Over the next few weeks, as Gideon mentioned, we're going to be doing a series called Summer in the Psalms. Summer in the Psalms. And each week for the next four weeks, a different preacher will open the book of Psalms and will communicate from the book of Psalms. Today we're going to be communicating, we're going to be starting on Psalm 1. We're not going to do 1, 2, 3, 4. There's going to be a selection of Psalms over four weeks. Okay. And each week we're going to use three headings to explore and to respond to what is written in the particular psalm that we're looking at. We're going to use the headings Adore, Admit and Aspire. Adore, Admit and Aspire. And at the end of each week's sermon, it's our heart's desire that you will be able to answer these questions. Adore, what did you learn about God for which you could give him praise and thank him? having been immersed in that psalm. The second one, admit, what did you learn about yourself for which you might repent, turn away, go in a different direction? And the last one, aspire. What did you learn about life that you could aspire to, ask God for, or act on? So that's our prayer and that's my prayer as we begin this series, those headings are from a book by a guy called Tim Keller, um, but we're going to be using them for the next four weeks. So let's look at the book of Psalms, because my job today is not just to look at Psalm 1, but to give us an overview of the book of Psalms, to give you an introduction, rather, to the book of Psalms. Okay, so what do I know about the book of Psalms? Well, firstly, if you're one of those strange individuals who has a paper Bible with you, um, you can put your thumbs in the middle and open it, and you'll be in the book of Psalms, which is really good. Yeah, I think it's helpful. The second thing about the book of Psalms that I'd like you to know is that I genuinely love it. I think it is an amazing book. Um, it's the longest book in the Bible. It's got 150 chapters and each chapter is itself an individual psalm. 73 of those psalms were written by King David. Most people say, oh, David wrote, and they talk about the psalms, and he didn't write them all. He only wrote just under half of them, and they're written by block. Asaph, Asaph, Moses, Solomon, the sons of Korah, Heman, that's a guy in the Bible, not Heman, the plastic Mattel figure from the 1990s, yeah? Uh, okay, Jeduthun. And basically, they're poems or songs. It's also, as well as being the longest book in the Bible, is the book that took the longest to write. The Psalms were written over a period of, some say, a thousand years, some say, 500 years in the Hebrew Bible in the Jewish Bible the heading it was called book of praises but in the Bible that's handed down to us we've got book of actually psalms means the sound of a resonating musical instrument string so the book of plucks 
the book of Strums is probably what we've got. And that basically because these mostly were songs. There was music with them and they were either sung in the temple at, in Jerusalem when a sin sacrifice was made, when a festival happened and people gathered together to give glory to God and thank him for his love and his power and his might. Or at home, in, public, in private worship, in family celebrations. But not always, they're also poems and meditations in their own right. You know, the Psalms, unlike virtually any other book, is intrinsically, fundamentally intended to be a work of art. Yeah, it's a work of art. It's subjective. It's from one person's experience. You know, they're describing what they're seeing. They're describing what they're feeling. They're describing the nature of God, the attributes of God. It's basically standing alongside somebody whilst they admire, whilst they appreciate. And in a sense, their subjectivity, the fact that you can see their emotional response, being built the way that we're built, an emotional response is stirred up in us. Have you ever been in that experience where somebody describes something from their perspective? You know, when somebody tries to describe something universal, it's difficult to get it to you. But when something describes something deeply personal, that deeply impacts them, that deeply affects them personally, and you're with them, when somebody's crying at a stained glass window or the beauty of a sunset, when somebody is emotionally connected with the majesty, the beauty, the splendor, the greatness, the goodness of something else, standing alongside them, being in the presence of their wonder, makes it so much easier to access wonder yourself. And that's what art does. And the Psalms are art. But written by many, many different people in vastly different circumstances over a thousand years. So genuinely, we get in the book of Psalms to the real, true universality of very strange and bizarre situations. People delighting in the beauty of creation, fearful for their impending death at the hands of those they had previously trusted. Declaring God's faithfulness, his glory, his goodness. Asking God to destroy their enemies or to make people who don't want do what they want them to do suffer. Deeply human book. It describes the reality of the lightest, most joyful experiences available to humanity and the darkest, most mean-minded. Because he doesn't... I don't know yet, anyway. Asking God to destroy their enemies. Being a lot of the Psalms are basically what are known as laments. Laments, which is basically moaning. It's complaining to God. It's actually, this is stinks. Why are they doing well and I'm not doing well? Oh God, what are you going to do? And are you going to get me out of this? This is a nightmare. I can't go on like this. You know, sometimes as believers, we, we can get our head in a space where we believe that we've just got to put a, put a bright smile on your face and step out of the morning and face the day and boop, doo, doo, doo. And you read the book of Psalms and you think, oh my goodness, this guy's full of it, isn't he? And it, I don't know about you, but it makes me feel better. But that sense, <laughs> that sense of standing alongside somebody who sees life just like you do, but is supernaturally inspired to understand it as you wish you could, inspiring you to see and to understand it yourself. And when the Psalms are put together, 
And we have a life of devotion to God where we pray through the Psalms, when we worship God through the Psalms, when we memorize and ingest the Psalms, when we put them together, you'll find yourself accompanied by all of these God-inspired poets as they describe the totality of God's relationship with humanity in good times, in bad, in plenty, and in crisis. And the truth is the Psalms were just that. They were put together. They were written over a thousand years, but they were put together in the form that we find them now at a time when God's people were in desperate need of that solid rock on which to stand. There were God's people were in desperate need of a reference point, a way of gathering together and celebrating God's goodness, acknowledging their need for him to have any hope of living a righteous life and to accept a sacrifice on their behalf in acknowledgement of their sin and atonement for their failure. You see, for hundreds and hundreds of years, all of that stuff had happened in the temple in Jerusalem. It had happened in the temple in Jerusalem, but in around 600 BC, so that's 2,600 years ago. Isn't it amazing that these poems echo 2,600 years and can impact your life today, can transform your experience this week? So 600 years before Christ, after failing abjectly to live right before God after God warned them if you don't mend your ways if you don't come back to me then I will send the Babylonians and they will take you into captivity the Babylonians came and carried God's people into captivity many many miles away from the temple many many miles away from the art and the ritual and the sacrifice for sin which was a foretelling of the death and resurrection of Christ Many, many years ago from temple worship, many, many years ago from having your daily life interrupted with a reminder that God created you and loves you and that you're insufficient without him and that you can come to him and receive of his grace and his mercy through the sacrifice on the altar in the holy of holies in the temple. And so after neglecting the festivals and the life that they signposted, for so long, God's people were taken for 70 years into captivity in Babylon. And while they cried out to God in their captivity, the Holy Spirit stirred in their hearts and they rediscovered the scripture and they rediscovered their love for God in the middle of their need for God. I believe there are people here right now and it's true of you that there are times when you have lost your love for God. You've gone cold. You felt distant. You felt like you're so remote and absolutely. And right now you might be in that situation. And all you've got is need for God. I want to tell you, God isn't despising you in this moment. Your need for him is the place that you meet him. Your need for him is the place that you meet him and he is waiting for you there. So in this moment of captivity, when they rediscovered God, they looked ahead to the promise of God for a Messiah through the prophets and through some of these psalmists and what they'd written about a king that was going to be established and would reign forever and who would take away the sins of his people. And they looked forward to that. They looked forward to a time when God's Holy Spirit would write his word on their hearts and dwell in them, making them righteous. Everyone say making them righteous. 
not just requiring them to be righteous, but making them righteous. And they compiled these 150 poems in the period after captivity. These 150 songs into not one book, but five books. It's really weird. A lot of people, the book of Psalms. If you look in the book of Psalms, every now and again, you'll come up, book one, book two, book three, book four, book five. And Psalm one that we're looking at today is actually, along with Psalm two, is an introduction to those five books, the book of Psalms. And in truth, what it was, and I've heard it described recently quite well by the Bible Project. I've got a great video on this, so I encourage you to watch it. Was a virtual temple. They couldn't go to church, so they went online. And when they went online, they found the core of what they really needed the solid rock upon which they stood. And when they came back, they said, We want to come back different. And Psalms were at the center of a relationship with God. So wherever they were, whether in Egypt or Babylon, the four corners of the earth, they could gather together and gaze upon the glory of God alongside whoever wrote these wonderful, wonderful words and their hearts would be stirred and their eyes would be opened and they would know who they worshipped. Many of the Psalms are written at certain points in the history of God's people and there are little notes in the margin, I love Psalm 51, where David, is re- a man after God's own heart, has committed adultery with a woman, got her pregnant, orchestrated the murder of her husband, and cries out to God and says, Oh, God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is detestable in my sight. Creating me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a steadfast spirit. That's, that's human's experience. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You might be here this morning, oh, if you knew what I'd done, I don't know if you got somebody pregnant and murdered husband. I'd <laughs> If you knew what I'd done, if I only had access to one book of the Bible, I've got to say, I think it would be Psalms. There's a good chance it would be Psalms. I love it. And Jesus loved it too. He quoted it often. It was indeed his most quoted book. I think there's going to be a slide on the back behind me. Of all the times, all of the times, in the New Testament that Jesus quoted the Psalms. It might not be there. It might come up as I'm talking. Dozens upon dozens upon dozens of times. He quoted the book of Psalms more than any book. And the thing of it is, the book of Psalms says an awful lot about Jesus. It talks extensively about man's need for power outside of himself to make him right with God. It talks extensively about an anointed one of God, an eternal king. It talks extensively about that, the Messiah. And so in Luke chapter 24, verse 44 to 45, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. I want to tell you right now, we come to the Bible. I heard somebody preach this recently. We come to the Bible like the shepherds came to the manger. We come to the Bible to find Jesus there. And we will find Jesus nowhere more beautifully and clearly communicated than side by side with the psalmists 
as they gaze upon the wonder of what God has revealed to them. So let's turn to it now. Psalm 1. And Psalm 1, excuse me, says this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's powerful and effective. We thank you that it's sharp enough to separate bone from marrow, soul from spirit. And we ask Holy Spirit that this morning you anoint your word. You move in power on your word and in our hearts. And you open the eyes of our hearts to see you as you are, to see ourselves as we are, and to build right relationship with you. We ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Praise God. So, who is this about? Well, it says it's about a righteous man. The King James Version calls him a righteous man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Who never walks in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the company of mockers. And it's about a wicked man who is like chaff blown by the wind and will not prosper. In the day of judgment, he will not stand. When we first read Psalm 1, if we don't know all of that history, and we don't know it's part of the introduction of a long book, and we don't know it's supposed to be read in conjunction with Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 talks about the Messiah, the coming king, it's really easy to read it. We look at it and we say, well, this is a moral story. There are good guys and there are bad guys. And obviously, you're going to be a good guy. So pull your socks up, stick your chin out, put your best foot forward and be good and it'll all be wonderful. There you go, that's my sermon for today. (laughs) I've got to say, sometimes I feel more like the guy that's blown like the chaff. Sometimes I feel that when I should be standing on solid ground, just one little breeze comes and I'm blown away. Sometimes I find myself on that slippery slope of walking where I shouldn't walk. And because I'm walking where I shouldn't walk, I stand where I shouldn't stand and pay a little bit too much attention to the counsel of ungodly people and things that I shouldn't be listening to. And because I've walked where I shouldn't walk and stood where I shouldn't stand, I notice there's this empty chair there for me. And so I sit in the seat of mockers. And you might think, Wayne... You head the pastoral department here at church. You shouldn't be saying these things. But you know something? I'm in good company. All over the word of God, it tells us that there is nobody righteous. Not a single person is righteous. Psalm 14 says, there is no one who does good, not even one. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, there is no one on earth who is righteous. 
No one who does what is right and never sins. The book of Romans says there is none righteous, not even one. The word of God tells us that if any man says he is without sin, there's a special word to describe him. Do you know what that word is? Everyone say it. What's the word? If any man says he is without sin, he is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So it's not about me, is it? Or it's not about you? It's confusing, isn't it? Well, I don't know if you've ever heard the, There was a story of a little boy in Sunday school. And the teacher said, I'm thinking of someone who is grey and has lovely pointy ears and sharp little teeth, uh, has four legs and a bushy tail and lives in a tree and eats nuts. And this little boy shouts out, Jesus! <laughs> and the teacher says, well, I was kind of thinking of Mr. Squirrel. <laughs> the little boy says, well, actually, I was thinking of Mr. Squirrel. But then I thought, well, you know, we're in Sunday school. <laughs> it's, it's, it's possibly a trick. I've got to say, it's a trick. Because this psalm is about Jesus. Is about Jesus. You might be thinking, no. I'll come back to it. Okay. But then we get to this word, he's righteous, and I'm wicked. Wicked, that's a bit heavy, isn't it? Wicked. I mean, wicked. Come on. Do I look wicked? To you? Don't, don't answer that. Don't answer that. Okay. Wicked. That word wicked is word that is also translated in the Old Testament as ungodly, worthy of condemnation, guilty, people that have done wrong. And you know, we can live our lives being defensive about we haven't done anything wrong. We don't deserve punishment or condemnation. But very often when we're good at justifying ourselves, it's because we've had lots of practice at justifying ourselves. Because deep down in our souls, when the lights go out at night, we know that we haven't been who we needed to be. We can be very good at judging other people and saying, oh, I'm, they're not like that and I'm not like that. And they believe the wrong thing and they think the wrong thing and they eat the wrong thing and they listen to the wrong music. But very often, that's a desire to make ourselves feel better about what we are, about who we are, about what we have done. And the truth of it is, as we read earlier in Luke 24, Jesus said that he is revealed in the Psalms. So is it really about Jesus? Well, I've got to say, it does sound more like Jesus than it does like me. You, know, you might think, well, it sounds very like me. I don't stand and walk and sit in the places I shouldn't. I don't, I don't walk in the council of ungodly people. But I want to say there's some good news here. It is about Jesus, but it is about you, and it's about me. It is about Jesus, and it's about you, and it's about me. This psalm contains the seeds of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the seeds of the good news about Jesus Christ. It doesn't say righteous are the people who don't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand or sit. It says that the people who are righteous don't do those things. Can you see the difference? Are you following me? Doesn't you do those things, you'll be righteous. If you're righteous, those are those things that you do. The fulfillment of the Old Testament idea 
in the temple that a sacrifice was needed to pay for the wrong that you have done so that you can be made right with God and have an effective relationship with him and then he can come alongside you and teach you to be the person that he created you to be from before the beginning of time is fulfilled in this scripture. Are you following me? God wants to make you righteous, but he doesn't want to make you righteous by behaving well. He wants to make you behave well by making you righteous. He wants to make you behave well by making you righteous. The good news that is available to us in Christ, that we can go not to a temple and acknowledge our need because we have wrongdoing. We deserve some level of condemnation. We are in some part guilty for ills of the world. Not to go to a temple and have a priest intercede on our behalf, but to go to the cross of Jesus Christ and receive his sacrifice on our behalf. The word of God says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has gone. The new has come. That phrase, in Christ, is a big deal in the Bible because it basically means if I'm in Christ and he is crucified on the cross and raised again to eternal life, then I am crucified on the cross and raised to eternal life. If he has been punished for my sins, then all of this wrongdoing that I've ever committed has been atoned for, has been paid for. I am free. Hallelujah. Good news. Good news. Good news. So here we come to our three headings. What is there in this psalm? that can lead us to adore God, lead us to worship God. The first thing is, is that he is perfect. He is sin-free. He was made in human likeness, but never sinned. The first thing that we delight him for is that he meets us where we are. He knows that there are people who are living lives separate from God. He knows that there are people whose lives look like the chaff that's blown away by the wind. He knows what you have been doing. He's not confused by your shenanigans. He's not persuaded by your justifications and your excuses. He knows you and he meets us where we are. And he makes us righteous in He offers us righteousness in him. The king has come, seated on the throne. We have a firm foundation upon which we can stand. Not on the basis of trying desperately week after week, day after day, to deal with the problems of our lives. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it says this. It says, the grace of God has appeared, which brings salvation to all mankind. It is teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Shouting at people doesn't help them to change their behaviour. Not long term, not really, not deep down. Letting people know that you love them, that you're committed to them, that you see the struggles that they're in and walking on a journey with them will change somebody's behaviour. And that is precisely the approach that the Lord Almighty, the King of Glory, has taken to you. And it's represented here in this psalm. So he meets us where we are. And he makes us righteous in him. 
He sets us free from self-justification and judging other people as wicked. And he sets us free to acknowledge, God, you know who I am. You know what I did. You know what I think. And you might think, well, I'm not wicked. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount actually said, if you've looked at somebody lustfully, you've committed adultery. If you, if, if you covet somebody's possessions, then you've already committed theft in your heart. And God cares more about your heart than he does your behavior. The truth of it is, yeah, the truth of it is, if the only thing stopping you from sinning is the consequences for you, then you're not just a sinner. You're selfish and self-indulgent and self-absorbed. But God wants to set you free from all of that. And he makes it available to us in Christ. Sets us free from being part of a generation that constantly looking to be part of the in-crowd and create an out-crowd that we can judge and condemn and criticize. Generation that says, I know my need of Christ. I know my destiny is to be made righteous. I cry out to you and ask to be made righteous. And when I am made righteous, I will not walk where I shouldn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. I will not stand where I should not stand. I will not go down that slippery slope to lead me, sitting with people that weeks ago, I would have wept for their souls. So we adore God for what he's made available to us. Not that he leads us on paths of righteousness. That he leads us in paths of righteousness. Not to paths of righteousness. That he changes our behavior. And plants us like a tree beside water. He makes us evergreen. Makes us evergreen. We thank him for that. So what do we admit? Well, we admit... The reason grace teaches me to say no to ungodliness is because there's ungodliness in my heart. There's wrongdoing, there's guilt, there's things that I know I have done wrong. That I don't always walk where I should walk or stand where I should stand or sit where I should sit. That I sometimes go on that slippery slope and even if it's only inside my own head, it affects my relationships. It affects my attitude and the decisions that I make. I've received the counsel of the ungodly. I've integrated ideas, thought patterns, beliefs that I know are not God's into the way that I live my life. You've got to admit it. I've not meditated upon his word day and night. That word meditating means to mumble, to mutter. They wouldn't have had written Bibles. So they just chewed it over, mumble, muttered, meditate. Maybe I need to admit that I'll be angry with God because there are seasons. This psalm says it bears fruit in its season. It doesn't say it bears fruit all of the time. Sometimes there's winter to break the soil up. Sometimes there's spring to get plenty of water to the, to the roots. Sometimes there's summer to make the tree grow and then comes the season of fruitfulness. And sometimes we just need to admit God yeah, I've done the wrong things, but also you tell me I'll bear fruit in season and this feels like a fruitless season. God, please move in my heart. And lastly, what can we aspire to? The thing that God's telling me to aspire to at the moment is to step away from judgment, to step away from condemnation, from pointing the finger I'm not wanting to be around people who do a thing or say a thing or think a thing or believe a thing that I don't do or think or say or believe. God wants to get his life through me into the lives of those around me. 
but we live in a generation where that spirit of judgment is sometimes all pervasive. What can we aspire to? We can aspire to stepping away from the counsel of the ungodly, to reject it, to renounce the lies that we have believed. We're in a brilliant course. It starts on October the 3rd. It's online right now, heart.church forward slash freedom in Christ. You can sign up for it. It's 10 weeks of Monday evenings where you look at what are the lies that have got into my heart? What are the patterns of believing based on the hurts I've experienced in the past or just the culture that I've grown up in that are damaging me? You can step away from those things. You can choose to step away from those things. You can turn back from the slippery slope. Enjoy the process of fruitful living. I would ask that you meditate on this psalm this week. I would ask that you, right now in the quietness of this place, say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this sermon this morning? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to step away from? What do you want me to change? I would ask those things of you if you're a righteous person, made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ, who knows that his righteousness, that her righteousness is not earned, it's bestowed because somebody else took the punishment for their wrongdoing. But if you're here this morning, and as I've been speaking, what you've sensed perhaps all you have sensed is I want to be that well-watered tree bearing fruit in season with leaves that don't wither I don't want to be sitting down with the people I've been sitting down with in a mire and a cesspit of our own making I don't want to walk in the places I've been walking I don't want to hear and believe the things I've been believing and I've tried to be good oh God I've tried to be good maybe you've been in church all of your life or maybe you've just recently found your way here. But I'm here this morning. And I want to say you can be in Christ when you walk out of that door this morning if you choose to. Show bow our heads, friends. If that's you right now, and you know that you've never accepted Jesus' death and resurrection, as the sacrifice, the payment for all of the wrong that you've ever done. You've never known what it is to be able to say, I am the righteousness of Christ. All my sin has been dealt with. Now let's get on with this business of living the life of a righteous woman, a righteous man. I'm going to say a prayer right now. Would you repeat it after me? Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me on the cross. Thank you for paying the price for all of my wrongdoing and making a way for me to live eternally in relationship with my heavenly Father God. I receive you as my Savior. I declare that you are number one in my life. And I accept the fact that in doing just that, I am made righteous. And I ask you to take me on this journey of fruitfulness that you have promised to all your children. We keep our eyes closed. If you're in the room right now and that is you, you prayed that prayer, 
Would you put your hand up above your head? Somebody will put a piece of literature in your hand. Anybody in that situation right now? Just put your hand high above your head. We'll see you. Put a piece of literature in your hand. Somebody here. Anybody else in the room in that situation who prayed that prayer this morning? Hallelujah. Anybody else? Up at the back? I think there's somebody here. Just in front of you, Joe, there's somebody with a hand up. It might be a child, but... I, anybody else? As we draw to a close now, I would just ask this one thing. If you are a believer, if you have made Jesus Lord of your life, if you know that he died a sacrificial death for your sin, grace has made salvation available to you. And it's made it available so you don't have to fear condemnation or judgment or exclusion because he's made his righteousness available to you. But maybe you're struggling with something in this season of your life. Maybe you're not walking. You're not standing. You're not sitting in the way that you should be walking, standing and sitting. You're not living that fruitful life. Maybe you're angry and you're bitter. I want to tell you right now, God has made a way that you can get out of that. And at the end of this service, at the front of the room here, there'll be a group of people with a red lanyard on with a pastoral team written on it, Sunday pastoral team. And they'll be willing to pray with you, to open the scripture with you, and to help you on your journey into the fulfillment of what God promises us through Christ and his word. Blessings upon you. God bless you. Thanks for joining us on the Heart Church Podcast. If you said that prayer and accepted Jesus into your heart, I want to celebrate with you. We have some tools to help you on your journey. Visit our website, heart.church forward slash response. To find out more about Heart Church, visit heart.church forward slash connect. Be sure to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. Thanks for listening and have a blessed week.